Well, Lord, I would just pray that you would uh, speak through your word as we look at it, as we explore it, as it is expounded. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you might think it's strange that on a weekend that we did advertise as a renewal weekend, that we're looking at a passage that speaks about reconciliation and about restoring people to fellowship with God and one another. A passage where Jesus actually articulates a formal process to follow. Because it's kind of like preaching on the Kingdom of Heaven Labor Department Complaints Resolution Procedure. You know? It's like a government department kind of uh, document about how you go about conflict resolution. Mainly it's because we moved the date of our uh, renewal weekend. Like most things in 2020, it was coveted. Uh, and yesterday we had a wonderful time with the people from Mahurangi uh, Presbyterian Church as they shared with us what God is doing in their midst. And uh, it was really encouraging. Uh, in fact, this, uh, this uh, renewal weekend was originally programmed for August. And we were talking about miracles and what they told us about the kingdom of heaven, which does fit in really with uh, you know, the um, kind of things that you think about when you're thinking about a renewal weekend fits in with the gifts of the Holy Spirit kind of mentality that we often think of when we think of renewal and the Holy Spirit. But maybe changing the dates was a God thing because it's important that we speak about conflict resolution and reconciliation because when, when we think of renewal and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, because relationships are important Relationships are central, are critical. Relationships have to do with the manifesto of the Holy Spirit rather than just the manifestation of the Spirit. The main way in which we are distinguished as a Christian community is by the fact that we love one another as Christ has loved us. A wise friend of mine speaking about the church and at the end of Acts 2 said the uh, signs of a genuine revival are a thirst for the word of God, a willingness to repent and change, uh, the renewal of worship, passion for prayer, a genuine concern for the poor and a genuine passion for seeing the lost come to know Jesus and a passion and commitment to unity. Signs and wonders were part of that, but that's what God did amidst the people. The other things were what was happening amongst the people as the Spirit moved in Acts 2. And of course, the biggest single unit of teaching that we have about the use of the spiritual gifts in the church is to a church, Corinth, that is wrestling with conflict, that is riddled with division, broken into different factions, following different leaders, fractured over how do you deal with different ethical issues? How involved in the pagan world around you do you get? What about sexual ethics? They were the things that they would split and divided. They were divided along socio-economic lines. The rich people would turn up for services and eat all the food, and the slaves would turn up later and there'd be nothing left. You know, they were, it was that broken. And in that, and Paul speaks to the church about how to come together again in love. And in that context, 
He has, to he has to tell the church that spiritual gifts are not to show how mature or super spiritual we are. Rather, they are to be used for the common good and they are to empower us to love one another. And right in the middle of his teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we have that most amazing passage of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's so wonderful, in fact, that we use it most at weddings. But it's a passage designed for us as a church to hear about our relationships with each other. A passage where the qualities of love taste like and exude the fragrance of the Holy Spirit, of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Holy Spirit working in a community, in our relationships with one another. We often think it's individually in our lives that this fruit is produced, but it's in community that it is produced. And N.T. Wright says, it's right in today's culture that we take reconciliation seriously. And then drawing us back to the passage we are looking at today, he goes on to say, this passage is severely practical as well as ruthlessly idealistic. Not a bad combination. Not a bad combination when it comes to speaking about reconciliation. Well, this year we've been working through the five blocks of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel under the title, A 2020 Vision of the Kingdom of God, the Manifesto, Mission, Meaning and Means of the Much-Awaited Kingdom of Heaven in Matthew's Gospel. And the passage we're looking at today is part of Jesus' teaching on the means of the kingdom, on what sort of community the church should be, how it is to be an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew 18 started with the disciples' questions, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, of course, flips that on its head by bringing a little child into their midst, someone with no status in this first century world and says that unless they become like this child, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. The humility of a child, according to uh, Michael Wilkins, is that they have no ability to further their own status or cause without the aid of a parent. For the disciples and us, entry into the kingdom of heaven is only through the grace and the love of our heavenly Father. And it was great to have those prayers of thanksgiving that focused on that at, at the end of our time of worship. You know, it's only through Christ, God sending his son, that we are able to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not our greatness, but God's great love. It's not our merit, but God's great mercy. And then Jesus goes on to talk how such humility and grace that we have received should be lived out by seeing all little ones as valuable and important to God. And then speaking more like the Godfather than God's Son, Jesus uses hyperbole of millstones and being tossed into the sea and uh, of mutilation uh, to uh, talk to his disciples and us about being willing to self-discipline so that such children and such little ones are not led astray or made to stumble. We've been shown God's grace, so we see everyone else through that lens of grace. 
And then Jesus uses the story of going and looking for the lost sheep to talk about going and finding those who do stumble, the little ones who do fall. And the passage we had read today is kind of like a shepherd's manual about how do you go and bring the wandering sheep back? How do you bring people back into fellowship? How do you reconcile yourself with people who have sinned against you and hurt you? So let's look at the passage. The first thing is that the whole tenure of the passage is about restoration and reconciliation. Bringing people back into fellowship together. When we see ourselves as humble little ones dependent on the greatness of God's grace, we want to extend that grace to others. When we see people as God's beloved little ones, we know we need to help them to regain their stumbling feet. It's easy for us to be focused on our own feelings, if we've been sinned against, our own hurt, our own indignation, our own pride on us. But the passage is all about restoration and reaching out. And often we think it's, well, it's easier to kind of paper over the cracks in relationships. You know, it's easier to, to just paper over, to have a live and let live attitude. My conflict management style is avoidance. I don't like conflict. I will avoid it. I will try and sweep it under the carpet. But the reality is that uh, for people and communities uh, who do not value genuine relationships enough to deal with things when they need to be dealt with usually find themselves tripping over that huge lump in the carpet, right? And it all comes apart and falls down as the cracks behind the paper make it structurally unsound. Well, the second thing is that reconciliation starts with us being prepared to go. Here we are told if a brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. The great example of that for us, of course, is God himself, God and humanity. When we turned away from God, God did not turn away from us, but sent his only son to bring us back into relationship with, uh, with him. You know, that's the, that's the restoration thing. As it says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, we all know John 3.16. God sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Sent and goes. And the first thing Jesus says to do is to go in private as an individual to see if things can be sorted between you. And I guess it's easy for it, rather than to simply go and deal with it directly, for it to become a matter of gossip or of grumble or of backbiting and bitterness. I once preached a sermon about the species of animal that is the most dangerous in the world. More people die from a bite from this animal than any other. And, uh, you know, what makes it so dangerous, of course, uh, is that uh, one bite from this animal uh, can infect a whole community with its venom. 
And I sort of did it as a public health warning. Of course, the uh, animal in question is the glossa. You might not have heard of the glossa, but it's the most dangerous animal in the world. And I finished the sermon by saying, glossa is Greek for the tongue. You know, that's true. The gossip glossa and the backbiting glossa. We need to be prepared to go straight to the person and get things sorted. Relationships and unity is that important. And it actually takes humility, courage and prayer to do that. Humility because we're going not to condemn but to seek reconciliation and restoration. Humility and courage because it may mean facing our own sin and our own fault in relationship as well. And prayer because we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth and to convict us of our need for God and to bring healing of relationship. We need Emmanuel, God with us, with us. And Jesus then says, well, if the one-on-one does not work, that we should take two or three others with us. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think of a time when I was in my late teens and I was living at home and, uh, and uh, my father ended up in this big argument with the uh, next-door neighbour. He'd come and knocked on the door and was yelling at my father. I think um, uh, my dad had, uh, their dog would come and poo on our lawn and my dad had uh, got a spade and flicked it back over the fence. And uh, he was there and he was red in the face and just going at my father. Now, in those days, uh, in my late teens, I had long hair and a big bushy beard and uh, most of the bulk wasn't down here, it was up here. <laughs> and uh, so I went and stood behind my dad and I gave, fixed my, my gaze, on, on my steely gaze on the guy and crossed my arms to kind of look tough, which worked. <laughs> The neighbour turned white and, and stopped yelling at my dad and uh, turned around and left. I don't know if the conflict was, uh, was solved, but it diffused the situation. But when we say bring two or three along, it doesn't mean to gang up on someone. You know, it doesn't mean to do that. It doesn't mean to sort of have peer pressure. Uh, comes from the Old Testament where in a court case you needed two or three witnesses to the truth. But hopefully if you bring along two or three wise people, there's an opportunity for fresh insight and fresh wisdom and for them to speak reconciliation and love into that situation. The word paraclete that Jesus uses of the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, we often translate as counsellor or comforter. But it's more correctly translated as a learned friend who comes alongside. And when we go into reconciliation, we need to be able to bring with us paracletes as well as the paraclete with us. And that's that situation. The third step is if it doesn't work, uh, was to bring it to the church. Now, of course, in Matthew's understanding of the church, the church that was probably small house church groups, it probably wasn't the large gatherings that it was today. However, it was to be able to bring that conflict or problem or sin before the whole community 
for the whole community to discern what should be done. Today in our church structure, we have robust procedures to do that. And a group set up on a presbytery level when leadership is involved in conflict so that we can sort it out. And the great thing, of course, is um, that, that people are becoming more and more uh, skilled up to be able to help with that conflict resolution. Of course, uh, in Matthew's time, there wasn't that plethora of different churches where people could just simply go, hmm, and go somewhere else. You know? Had to work through the relationships. Had to work through those things. The fourth step was that uh, if the person wouldn't repent, if there was no reconciliation, that the church should treat someone not willing to repent as a tax collector or as a pagan. Now, um, you know, uh, we might think of that as some sort of excommunication, a casting out. But you have to remember one of the amazing things about Jesus was that he ate with tax collectors. He loved tax collectors. He wanted to bring them back into fellowship. You have to remember the same thing with the, uh, with the pagans was that Jesus was prepared to sit down with meals with them as well. You know, uh, I know up at uh, Hope Tikipanga, he had preaching on the Syrophoenician woman uh, who, you know, was, was a, a Gentile who uh, had conversation with Jesus around a table and whom Jesus healed his daughter. The feeding of the 4,000 was in a predominantly Gentile area. So it may warrant a change of status to consider someone as outside the church, but it's not a throwing away. Even here, there is hope and work for reconciliation. James Glass wrote a book on pastoral ministry. And uh, one of the chapters in it is called Learning to Fight Like a Christian. And no, it's not an expose of a secret Christian martial art practiced by monks in some remote monastery. There is no Jew Jesuit, Sue, or um, Franciscan Fu, or um, Dominican Do, like Judo. There's none of that. Rather, he gives some very practical advice on how to work through conflicts together. He says the most important thing is to listen. We often go and we want to make our point known, but key thing is to listen, to listen well to the other side of a conflict. He suggests it's a good idea to have a pause or silence after someone has spoken to enable you to work through what the other person has said, instead of simply when they stop talking, you realise, aha, it's my turn to get in and make my point. You know, uh, when the other person is speaking, we're just thinking of what we're going to say instead of what they are saying. We actually need to pause and in conflict give people the respect of simply listening. He also says that, uh, um, well, one of the things that has always fascinated me are the times in the gospel when it says Jesus knew what was on their hearts. Are you aware of those passages? And it's usually the people that he's in conflict with. It's usually the Pharisees 
and the religious leaders, but Jesus knew what was on their hearts. And I used to think, is that some sort of supernatural understanding of the heart, maybe? Or was he just a very good listener? And Glass says one of the key things we need to do, which is helpful, is to be able to reflect back to the other person what we have heard them say so that we respect their perspective enough to be able to say, I've heard you and this is what I've heard you say. Just really simple stuff. And, you know, we need to work on our conflict resolution skills because the church in the past universally and well you know the things that have gone on find it difficult to do that and this section finishes with two passages that we're very familiar with two passages that help us see Christ's involvement in this process the first speaks of whatever we bind on earth is bound on heaven and whatever we loose on earth is loosed in heaven it speaks of the need for the church to be in unity and in tune not only with each other, but the spirit and what God is wanting to do on earth. In particular, when we go through this process that Jesus had outlined. And those words echo uh, closely the words of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We need to forgive people and they are forgiven. We don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. And there's no chance of reconciliation. The last passage we often hear, most usually hear, embarrassingly mumbled at Christian events where the turnout hasn't been that good. You know, oh, well, we're two or three gathered together. And it's quite okay to use that passage in the context. However, here it speaks of the need for unity and is also of seeking the unity and consensus in this process and reconciliation that can only come from Christ's presence with us. It's Renewal Weekend, and we've been talking about relationships and reconciliation. And we've done that because good relationships are important for renewal and revival. Often genuine moves of the Holy Spirit stumble over unresolved conflict and the unacknowledged hurt we inflict. God moves, as we heard from Nick McLennan yesterday, when people come together in unity and prayer. Good relationships are also important for evangelism. My mentor, Jim Wallace, regularly talked of this and he would say, God is not in the habit of putting healthy babies in unhealthy incubators. And good relationships are important for our witness to the world today. A world which is becoming more and more polarized politically and culturally and racially. That has become known as an offense culture and an outrage culture. Where relationships are throwaway. People easily blocked and unfriended if you disagree with me and my position. A world that needs to know how people who can disagree and do disagree can actually be in community together and genuinely love one another. And you know, that's one of the ways, that's the, you know, that's the way that people will know that we are Christ's disciples. The world genuinely needs to know people who can be one in Christ. And they will be one to Christ. 
Lord, this morning we want to stop. And we want to thank you very much for the way that you have reconciled us with yourself. You did it by not standing back, but by sending your son Jesus Christ into this world. Through his life, his death and his resurrection, we are reconciled with God to become brothers and sisters. We are God's beloved children. Father God, we would pray that you would help us as God's beloved children to be able to show the same love and grace and humility by uh, seeking reconciliation with one another, by learning what it is to love one another, even when we have been wronged, even when we are in conflict. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move in our midst, to strengthen our love for you, to strengthen our love for one another, to enable and empower us to witness to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that holds us together. In Jesus' name, amen. And look at